This play is a classic because it speaks of a timeless community struggling through change. This play is a classic because it is a story of renewal and rebirth that we can all relate to or at least yearn for. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts. Mary Candler, founder, former artistic director, and curator for Expand the Canon. And me, Shannon, curator, ensemble member, director of production of Hedgebag Ensemble Theater. And we're here to introduce you to some plays by women that are classics. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. And today, we are here to talk about Furiwa by Afua Sutherland. Now, here is a pitch from our website, expandthecanon.com, which you should totally check out if you're looking for a story about a small community in love, akin to our town. Consider this play about how an overlooked outsider and two powerful women can shake a community out of a slump. Set in a small Ghanaian village, a love story emerges, challenging the town to reconcile tradition with modernity. Relatable across the globe, this sweet yet brave look into a slice of Ghanaian life shows what it takes to rebuild a community. Hope, courage, and open hearts. Great, wonderful. Thank you for that website pitch, Mary. So why did we pick this this play. Shannon, I really, I remember reading this play for the first time and just feeling like I was encountering this delicate flower. Just very, very heartwarming and kind. And also a play about like incredible resiliency. So like resiliency and growth also tackled with like kindness and open hearts like could we all be so lucky I yeah yeah I remember it's funny that you say that because I also remember reading this play and I think it was at a time when we were kind of feeling at least for me I was at the point where we were just looking for those few more plays that we really think should be produced and we want to do and I think a few of you had already read Foriwa and I I read this and I felt the same way I was like this is this is it like this is so wonderful it's so pure and and relatable and wholesome and I just yeah I really really enjoyed I really enjoyed reading this play it fits so nicely with what we were looking for and you know I really like the you just use the word wholesome which is not a word that I had thought about with this play but truly Mm. I I do I keep saying to myself you know it deserves to be produced everywhere but I could really see this being in community theaters around the United States because there is this kind of like heartland of America feel right even though it's a Ghanaian play yeah it's very it's very just like any type of small community can relate to this because this is a small community that has you know characters all over the place and strong personalities and and family and a heart and they just want the best for their community and you can tell and it's it's that's why it's so relatable i think it's because it's so 
um, kind of an everyday slice of life, that's what it is, a nice slice of life play um, of a small community. Yeah, and you know, we, sometimes we talk about, you know, what makes a classic, and one of the one of the ways that we define it, and we're constantly talking about what this is and refining what that means to us, but it being relatable to a wide cross-section of humans, right? Yes. And while this is it's specifically set in Ghana. It is in a Ghanaian village, but it like touches on so many things that just are part of the human experience. You've got this generational change. You've got a town going through kind of, um, it's falling apart and they're looking to rebuild it. There's kind of like the life cycle of the towns of, of our, whatever country you are in. Right. It is a story about change and not only like, ooh change is good which is obvious <laughs> but like change is hard and change yes. takes evolution and growth and with kind and open hearts we can really achieve that and while you know i keep talking about how this does have this small town feel that is i think relatable to anyone that's ever grown up in a small town it also because of that change message really re resonates on a larger systemic kind of um, point of view as well. Mm -hmm, so, I mean, mm -hmm. we're sitting here in New York City being like, oh, yes, this resonates with small towns. And we're like, right. what does that even mean? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> like, I feel as a New Yorker that I see how this also um, tells a story about bigger systemic change that I see on a larger scale. Yeah, I agree. But I think also you speak of us being in New York City and, and, you know, living in a big city and we're talking about a small community. But this made me think a lot about my family because a community is what you make of it. Right. So like, yes, the people of New York, we're a community. We take care of each other. We're rude, but kind, <laughs> all that stuff. But like, I think my family is also my community. I might not see them every day. I might not um, be around them every day, but they are they they are part of what I consider my community. And this made me think of that. And also that fear of the outsider. Yes. When we are holding on to tradition, sometimes the outsider, the stranger, as we call him in this play, the potentially you know. Ultimately, Labaran is an immigrant, even though he's from Ghana, but he's an immigrant from another village. Right. And how it can be very easy to feel that an outsider is going to take away your tradition, but instead they can enhance them. They can right. revitalize your tradition in a more vibrant um, kind of setting, which is beautiful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like sometimes it takes someone else, an outsider, to to see what is wrong yeah and point out what maybe isn't working as well as you think it might be and it doesn't need to be like everything you do is wrong it's just like hey this is not working anymore for the outcome that you want maybe try this new way to do this and i love that you know in in this story the trajectory of someone pointing out that as like a observer is first met with defensiveness of course right because it's like ooh, you know you might have been feeling deep down that something was wrong or that the town was in a funk or whatever but an outsider pointing it out it's like mm, <laughs> no thanks like we're fine we're good we're good and then you know the finally like finally opening hearts and allowing that in in the spirit that it was intended which is like the growth spirit goodwill is like really affirming to be like 
okay, this person is pointing out something that I have known deep down but I couldn't wrestle with. And to have gratitude for that rather than defensiveness is a hard journey. But it is a journey uh, yeah. that we watch a whole town go on in <laughs> Foriwa. Yes. I mean, no one wants to hear that they're wrong. I think that's, a, that's the most... That's it's so hard when you're like, hey, you're actually not right when you've believed for so long that this was the way to do it. It's hard. It's hard to come to terms with that. But like, it, you it is it is hard. Um, and it's hard even when all the evidence is in front of you. You know, in this play, yeah. the evidence is that uh, all the young generation has left. No one wants to stay in the town. There are no businesses. The school locally has shut down. We're just watching this town kind of bleed to death, frankly. And it's still really hard to admit that maybe things aren't working mm. because it's comfortable. It's because it's like the values that your parents pass down to you that just aren't serving you anymore. Yeah. I mean, I can think of so many. I think this is why it makes it a classic because I can think of so many classical plays written by men of what we considered classics before we embarked on this wonderful project um, that are written by men that just have the same themes of, you know, working with traditions that no longer work for you and being so reluctant to adapt and to modify your, your, um, your actions just to bring out a different... And another outcome, Death of a Salesman, comes to mind. Death of a Salesman is a really great example of that. I'm really racking my brain now because I know you are absolutely correct that there are many plays about this. And I'm like, what are they? But I do think it's, that's really true. You know, in our pitch, we reference our town. And, you know, it's not a direct one-to-one -one comparison, certainly. I want to say the actual parallel is in feeling. Yes. You know, it's about this small New England town and the daily life practices in that town. Right. And it's not really so much about change and, like, the evolution of people, but um, that feeling and also having the observer, the stage manager character, kind of um, having an outside eye and really being able to assess what's going on in the town and talk about it um, from a more removed standpoint is very akin to how Labaron is able to look at the town. He becomes our narrator also, mm -hmm. you know? He yeah. comes in with these big narration monologues that are so helpful to contextualize what's really going on. Right. And I, I just feel like this is a really lovely substitute for our town in your next season. Legacy. What happens in this play, Shannon? <laughs> Yes. So according to the stage directions, the play takes place in a very dilapidated street in Carafaso. It is, however, the most important street there. And that's written. That's one of the first lines in this play as stage directions. Um, this play was intended to be performed in the open air in a street in any of the many small Ghanaian towns. So to I give you, right, it really gives the feel of like, this is meant to be a small town, a small village. Um, it is supposed to represent the community. You're not meant to do this on a big Broadway stage. It's meant to feel intimate and so that you're in with the community and you understand the stakes. Because I feel like when you're the smaller the community, the higher the stakes in a way. Um, because everybody feels so strongly about this thing that they have to protect. I love this. I would kill to see this as an immersive production Ugh. on some main street of a small town. But I also want to highlight that um, Afua Sutherland is a really shrewd writer for the theater. Because she also notes, if that's not possible for you, this could also be done in a black box with symbolic you know, props and set pieces. Which I appreciate the practicality of. 
Exactly, exactly. So the play opens on Labron, a stranger in Carafaso, who speaks of the wasted potential of the small town. It has not known much progress in many years, but he can tell that the land is ripe for it. And even though he's a stranger, he's committing himself to help this town reach its full potential. He has this beautiful monologue where he just talks about everything that he sees and what he plans for the town. And it really, really sets the tone. I think it's even a prologue for this play. It sets the tone for the play. After Labaran's monologue, in come some friendly neighborhood women who call on Foriwa, who is the most eligible woman in town, and the daughter of the chiefstess of Kirifaso, who is called Queen Mother, to get her to come to her friend's wedding. Foriwa declines, as the women expected, and they go on their way to their friend's wedding and run into Labaran, who's just in the street. They try to flirt with Labaran, but it is clear his intentions might lie elsewhere. Hint, hint, it's Foriwa. To be clear, they haven't met at this point, but he just watched the interaction between her friends and Foriwa, and he was definitely checking her out. And he's she like, is yeah. impressive. She is impressive. She's strong-willed. Even from this first interaction, you can tell she's strong-willed. She knows herself and her opinions and um, and is also a beautiful woman. She's also newly back in town. You know, right. like like um all the all the kids uh, basically <laughs> moved out and she is back visiting her mom for this upcoming festival right and and labran has been in this town now for three to four months and so this is his first time really he's heard about foriwa but this is his first time really seeing her so foriwa on the other hand pays little mind to the stranger he's been there for four months and is loki living in a tent on the street because there isn't much room for him anywhere else in the town and he is working in his office there um she does notice he's handsome because she's heard about him and she kind of sees him but little else so we move from the street to the house of foriwa in the house queen mother foriwa's mother comes in to tell foriwa that she has to get married she womp has womp. A, yeah <laughs> she has a suitor coming mr anipare and it is high time she settles down Foriwa is a catch, as we have mentioned, and men have been after her since she hit puberty. Um, that's part of the conversation that she had with her friends. She has seen every one of her friends get burned by men with empty promises. They've all gotten married, and, and she just doesn't want to be part of that. Foriwa says she'll meet Mr. Anipare, but she promises nothing. Queen Mother talks of duty and how she would like Foriwa to marry and move out of Kerafaso because she's too bright for the small town. She just came back from school, and as Mary said, you know, so she's intelligent, educated, and she wishes more for her daughter. Also, they need to follow tradition because the men in the town council already feel not wonderful about the changes Queen Mother is proposing. Um, you know, Queen Mother has some ideas, and, and the tradition is that Foriwa is at an age to get married. This is a tale we know well. Um, but Foriwa stays true to her values, and she's like, you know what? I'm not promising anything. I'll meet this man, but I most likely will not marry him. So she meets Mr. Anipare and his aunt, and in a funny turn of events, turns him away, and we find out that he's actually only coming after her for her status, beauty, and money. He didn't really care about her. He had been courting her for a while, but he was just, a, we find out through, you know, some side conversations that he's broke, and uh, he has debts to pay, and was hoping Foriwa would be his ticket to financial stability. Not right. No, wrong. <laughs> can I can I please jump in here and just please. say like my favorite character, Auntie Dosia, comes yeah. in in this scene and she is 
incredible. Talk about like the cast of characters of just community members, you know, coming through this play. Auntie Dosia is everything. Just like calls Anipare out on his behavior yeah. and is like, I'm here to do this thing for you, but you're basically nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love it. The women in this play truly are, are so bright and so witty and clever. They're what kind of makes this play. So the old men on the council um, grumble about Foriwa's lack of tradition. Well, it's only one man, Sintem. And we feel the pressure he puts on Queen Mother. The town is preparing for a festival and she announces she wants to hold a gathering before the official start of the festival, which is unheard of. The festival has always run one way and it's blowing everyone's mind that Queen Mother wants to turn around the whole procession of the festival and everyone's kind of up in arms. Well, not everyone, but most men are up in arms and um, this makes the old guard bristle even more. Oh, there's this wonderfully terrible line that Sintem has here that says something like, Oh, I knew when we put a woman on the stool, also known as the throne, that we'd be in trouble, especially a woman who reads. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah I mean, you're right. That was going to be trouble because <laughs> here you go. Here you go. So this conversation happens. We turn to the street where Lavaron has been working on the town. He has been working with a bookshop owner to revitalize the storefront and bring up business. Um, this was thought impossible because of the limited resources of the town and of the school, but Lavaron manages it. He creates a sign for the bookstore so that it's very, you know, it looks better and it has a clean storefront. He buys up more books for the store. Um, he really works with the store owner who's like I don't think this will work all of these kids have are going out of school somewhere else and Labaran is like no trust that if we build the bookstore the children will come this is really um, ultimately a story of faith in some yeah. ways because you know Labaran everyone's like there's no market for this you're right. never gonna be able to sell books what are you doing but he is like have faith put your you know make the first step order the books fill the bookstore and they will come and that's like quite a leap and yep. he's right but if you listen to all the naysayers there would never have been books in the bookstore so how would anyone there would have never been a business uh, agreed i mean Labaran is really resilient in his faith of the town. It's funny how no one from the town has faith in its potential, and he's the only one who's like, I got to keep pushing because I know what this town can be. Foriwa notices his efforts, and they start to work together on the bookstore to bring in more business. So this is when we see their relationship really flourish. She sees the, the faith that he has in this town and the potential, and she agrees. Furi That's why Foriwa came back to be with Queen Mothers, to come back home, but also, you know, try to rebuild the town a little bit or to get a sense of what the town can be. They bond, they share, and they admire each other's intellect, and it's all very wholesome and wonderfully cute. Labaran, to speak of the faith that he has in Kerefaso, Labaran has even brought back two sons of Kerefaso he met in school, in college, to work on agriculture and the infrastructure of the city. So he met these people in, in college, and he was like, I have this idea, um, and they are engineers, and you know sons from small towns who then go to become engineers you expect them to go work in big cities and this is noted this is a really important part of his efforts to bring to revitalize Kirifaso. then comes the anticipated pre-festival gathering 
Queen Mother pretty much denounces the inability for the town to grow. She's like, this cannot continue. Um, we need change. She comments on the lack of purpose the town feels, which is perpetuated by this firm grip on traditions that, while pleasant and comforting, can hold back the growth of their community. All of their bright children leave Kerefasa to study, and then they work elsewhere, which is pretty much what we've been talking about, about the whole, you know, the, the flight of the small, smart children. They just don't come back home. And Foriwa, in a moment of clarity and bravery and shock to her mother, announces, Mother, I will stay and place my efforts here. I choose Kerefaso and this new life. So, you know, it's very much two women standing strong in their belief of Kerefaso and wanting to, to make the city evolve and the town change for the better. And Queen Mother is shocked and a bit sad for the loss of the future she had envisioned for her daughter because she really wanted her to, she wanted to perpetuate kind of that, you know, my daughter leaves and has a better future elsewhere because as much as Queen Mother has faith in her town, everybody else needs to come together and work. It can't just be one person doing the work. But Foriwa tries to reassure her that her place is in Kirifaso. And this is solidified when Foriwa shows Queen Mother the work Labaran has been doing with the bookstore. And Queen Mother learns of the work that he's also done with the sons of Kerefaso. And the play closes on Foriwa, daughter of Kerefaso, and Labaran, a stranger in Kerefaso, purposefully walking hand in hand down the street, announcing their courtship loud and proud. Symbolism of new and old coming together to bring the town to its intended future. And there's something so cool at the very end. Um, we have Sintim, who was the biggest kind of naysayer to all of this. Sintim comes back and says, he's bringing a gift of a sheep, um, but he <laughs> says, I have said to the sheep, I'm taking you to the finest girl that ever grew on Kirifaso's soil because I'm proud of her. Because she has the fire of those courageous women who made men of our ancestors. Those were the women who loved their lovers into friends, into fathers, and into men. I've oh. told the sheep all this. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, you know, she spoke a language that could be heard, mm -hmm. you know? so cool yeah no it's it's really wonderful how i think that's what it it took the three of them it took queen mother foriwa and labaran to to really bring the town together and to realize what needed to be done and i think that's really beautiful i just feel like walking away from this play that the future of kirifaso is so strong mm -hmm. and so bright and it's going to become such a vibrant and warm space history so what a wonderful story. I'm so curious to know more about the woman who wrote this, who wrote this really beautiful and totally relevant and um, <laughs> resonant play. Yes. Um, what's super amazing is that in my research of Ifwa Sutherland, it feels like an autobiography, autobiographical play in a way. But Ifwa Theodora Sutherland was a beloved playwright, author, and child advocate. She was born in Cape Coast, Ghana, in June of 1924, when it was still under British colonist rule. At the time, it was called the Gold Coast. Um, and then later, when it gained independence, it, the Gold Coast separated into three countries. One of them was Ghana. 
There isn't much about her early childhood or previous education to be found about Afua Sutherland, which I feel is potentially because it wasn't recorded or historians didn't feel it was important or there, n nothing really important happened then. Um, but historians seem to focus a lot about her life post higher education. She studied teaching as what would be the equivalent of a bachelor's degree here. I and see, kind of just like Foriwa, just like you're saying. Exactly. And then she went on to England to continue her education, earning a BA degree at Homerton College, Cambridge University, and she was one of the first African women to study there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and this is in the 50s, so just saying <laughs> And she studied, and she also went to study linguistics at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. I am guessing that they have changed the name of that program. I hope so. Um, but this is very much like Foriwa. She went abroad to study, and then, and then in 1951, Ifua Sutherland returns to Ghana and began writing for children while also teaching at a secondary school. Very, you know, this is very, the parallels of Foriwa and Ifua Sutherland are um, insane. She would later say, I was on teaching practice with my students one in a village, and I got positively angry about the kind of literature that the children were being forced into. It had nothing to do with their environment, their social circumstances, or anything. And so I started writing. I love this so much in comparison to this play, because yeah. we talk so much about, like, filling the bookstore with books that will be like meaningful to the children there yes, yes. and this feels I, when i um heard this quote it feels so in line with also what we're doing with etc because this is i mean what she's talking about is children having the representation that they need and and you know seeing themselves in books and and um knowing that it's not just white men that we're talking about that belonged in history books it, they had a history too ghana has a history too and i feel like with etc that's what we're trying to do is it's not just cis white old men who wrote classical plays women and non-binary folks were present too and we need to see ourselves represented in the works that we produce and learn about here 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 um, Ifua Sutherland felt her purpose was to develop adult and children's literature in her country because she felt it was the f main method for children to gain a sense of self, discovering themselves through the books, plays, and texts they read. Um, so exactly what we were just saying. She said this about books and literature in an interview with Burt Kruger-Smith in the early 80s. The image of a book is about self-image. You open a book and it's about you, not always about other people. And she added this when talking about the literature of her country, of her own country. We have a fantastic wealth of verbal arts, poetry and narratives, epic legends and folk tales. And she said this in the context of the word literature because she, meant she states that there isn't written literature in Ghana because things weren't written down, but it was shared through verbal arts, poetry, and narratives. And there, there's, a, you know, there's so much information there that's just not written, which is another reason why she wrote, which I think is so beautiful and powerful that she's like, I'm going to take this on by myself and record these stories for the children of Ghana. It is so important. And like, we need to find more Afua Sutherlands because I know anecdotally that so many stories, like, you know, classic stories by women mm -hmm. were oral, you know, that because women were community makers, yeah. community builders. And there is something um, <laughs> ethereal about an oral tale because it can disappear on you. Mm -hmm. 
And I know that there are people out there that know oral stories and folklore and what have you, or like have seen like that annual play that happens every year that there's no script for. Right, right. I want it. This makes me think of the line in Hamilton where they sing, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And I think that's so important too of like, we need to keep telling these stories, whether they're verbally, orally, or, or written, because they're important and they're what matter and they're what they're these classics that share our truth, you know? But I, it's funny when we talk about written work versus, and then I'm going to go back to talking about Fua Sutherland, but when we talk about the written work being important and being able to be transmissible, I think about all of the literary works lost in the Library of Alexandria in Egypt when it burned down. It's like all of this information that burned down and because it wasn't shared orally, those are texts that are missed as well. When if they were had been shared orally and, and, and um, perpetualized that way and immortalized that way, maybe we'd still have the information that lives, that lived in that library. Food for thought. So in 1954, she married Bill Sutherland, an African-American and Pan-Africanist who in 1953 had moved to Ghana. They had three children together, an educationalist, Essie Sutherland Addy, an architect, Ralph Sutherland, and a lawyer, Amoe Sutherland Phillips. And she and Ifua Sutherland helped her husband Bill establish a school. Fun fact, if you decide to produce this play, you will in fact get to correspond with Afua Sutherland's kids who will be giving you rights to do this play. They are are very kind. And it's, I think that's just wonderful. So when the Gold Coast became the independent nation of Ghana in 1957, Afua Sutherland organized the Ghana Society of Writers, which is later known as the Ghana Association of Writers which in 1960 brought out the first issue of the literary magazine Okieame. She founded many important Ghanaian literature institutions, including the Ghana Drama Studio, the Ghana Society of Writers, the Ghana Experimental Theatre, and many, many others. As the earliest Ghanaian playwright and director, she was an influential figure in the development of modern Ghanaian theatre and helped to introduce the study of African performance traditions at the university level. So this, we're talking about the 1950s slash 60s, and there's no real study. There's no real formal study of Ghanaian theater. And this is what we talk about, you know, the oral transmission of text. It's like, it's all good and wonderful, but that's something about the classics. It's when it can be studied by multiple people. I think that's why Shakespeare is so prolific and, and all these other classical male theater uh, writers, playwrights that we know is because they're, plays have been written down, translated, and shared with the greater world. And so by her doing this, by helping to introduce the study of African and more, uh, African performance traditions at the university level, she's bringing Ghanaian theater to the conversation, to the table. The Ghana Drama Studio became a training ground for many theater practitioners across Africa. It was like the Rada or the Juilliard of Africa. The site of This is a fun fact. The site of the Ghana Drama Studio is where the National Theatre of Ghana now resides, which I think is so beautiful. They did this to honor her because it's such an important landmark for Ghanaian theatre and for African theatre that that's where they built the National Theatre of Ghana. And they actually uh, built a replica of this, of her, of the first Ghana Drama Studio in um, the University of Ghana so that to continue the tradition which I believe is where her daughter teaches. Yeah. Which is just so beautiful that, you know, they've continued that and they've 
it shows the importance of Ifua Sutherland that the work that she's done stays strong to this day. Um, yeah, I just think it's really, really wonderful that they support her that way. She was a cultural advocate for children from the early 50s until her death in 1996 and played a role in developing educational curriculum, literature, theater, and film for and about Ghanaian children, which I think is so important that she was doing this work for and about Ghanaian children. Um, this, to anyone who remembers the Harlem Renaissance, the conversation was, you know, by us, for us, and about us. I am saying that wrong. But the, 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 the sentiment is the same of like when we take care of each other, we can, there, we can then better share our stories, which again, it's so important. Her work was so influential that it led to the development of a model for public children's park system for the country. That's how important her work was, is that it influenced the actual infrastructure of her country. You can check out her 1960s photo essay, Playtime in Africa, which is co-authored by Willis E. Bell. And by co-authored, he took uh, photographs and she wrote poems. And this photo essay highlighted the centrality of play in children's development. This collection of images paired with beautiful text demonstrated the ease and beauty of child development. And I looked at these images and I read these poems and they're truly, it's, again, it's like this play. It really tugs at your heartstrings of just seeing children play. And um, psychologists will also say this, that those years are so formative in the way that we interact with other humans and, and learn what rules are and we gain a sense of morality and right and wrong. And if we don't have, if we're not learning this in a, positive environment we as children children can lose aspects of themselves or you know they lose some sense of identity which is what Ifua Sutherland was doing trying to bring a sense of identity to her country at a young age. Sutherland's pan-Africanism was reflected in her support for its principles and her collaborators with African and African diaspora personalities in a range of disciplines including interactions with Ama Ata Aido which I apologize if I'm pronouncing wrong, who's another Ghanaian playwright we read for The List last year, who has wonderful texts as well, Maya Angelou, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Shirley Graham Du Bois, Langston Hughes, Martin Luther King, and Coretta Scott King, to name a few. And those were just a few of the names. There were other names out there, but I was like, these are the names that most people will recognize, and they're already so impressive. I mean, she was really friends with these people. Maya Angelou talks about her, talks about Fua Sutherland in one of her memoirs. Um, Sutherland was the inspiration be behind the biannual Pan-African Festival of Theater Arts, known as Panafest, first held in 1992. She had originally written a proposal in the 1980s for a Pan-African Historical Theater Festival in Ghana meant to bring together Africans from around the globe. So they read this and they were like, this needs to happen and created the festival. Her work made her one of the most prominent creative figures in Ghanaian history, and her works include Foriwa, which we left, which we is on our list, Adufa, um, which is a play that we also read, which is wonderful, and The Marriage of Anna Anansewa, which is one of the later plays that she wrote before her death. What an incredible woman! Uh, truly, she she you know I I was talking with Sky Pagan, our other curator, and we were talking about the women who write these plays that we have on our list. And I can't it reiterate enough how wonderful all these playwrights are. They work so hard and they have such full lives and yet take the time to write down these beautiful plays that end up on our list. And I, I think it's just amazing how much women can do. Here, here. Dum, dum.
Now we've got one of our most favorite scenes from this play. Foriwa is newly home from the big city and has to deal with all those why aren't you married yet questions from her mother. But the conversation gets realer and deeper. Here, Foriwa is played by Tara Cheney and Queen Mother by Shariba Rivers, who were both in Hedgepig's reading of Foriwa during the 2021 Expand the Canon Festival. Foriwa, you're up already. Good. It's this morning, as you know. Ah, ah, what? Mama, I have told you what I had to say. My daughter, all your friends are getting married. I know. I see them. Indeed, they are married. Isn't it only a year since I've been married? And is her husband not already marrying again this very morning? Look at my friend, Tawia. Her young son, having tossed her from trouble to trouble, has returned jobless to rot away, playing droughts all day in Jerifaso. Haven't you seen her misery? For you are. And my other friends? The light is soon dulled in their lovely eyes. Their step once lively, now drags in the dust. To everyone, Herlock, those who seek marriage with you are not to be compared with the husbands of Amina and Tawia or any of your friends. What proof have I? Take this present suitor, for example, Anipare. Is not his push to make a great success of his own life proof enough of his worthiness? A son of Cherifaso, who has salvaged his life from this decrepitude, is definitely worth something. The kind of life he has made for himself makes me shudder. For you are. He is due here soon for your answer. What shall we say? What I have said. When Mr. Anipare saw me about marriage, I didn't deceive him. It's his own affair if he is coming here in spite of that. He must have expected something hopeful when he placed the matter in the heads of your elders, as custom says. Very well. Then, as I said, he's coming because he believes in his method. Oh, mother, I've asked you to be patient with me. I'm not in any hurry. Every woman's lot is marriage. So they say, rushing in. Mother, I don't know how to get you to understand. I came home last night hoping to talk to you about other things. I know no one else to whom I can unburden myself. You have some problem? Yes. Well, I don't think it's a problem, but who's going to understand? You'd better tell me then. What is it? Are you pregnant? And is that why I'm saying no to this marriage offer? No, mother. What is it then? It's this place and you, pulling at my heart, making me restless. When I come to the place where my mother is queen, I should proudly lift my head. I've listened to your misgivings about this town. All these years I've taken note of your futile arguments with the elders. You grieve when every meeting turns to litigation and obstruction. You fight, and that makes me proud of you. But you are alone, and you lose. Is this going to be forever? My child, I have done what I can to save you from it all, buying you your freedom through your training. 
How many times have I not sat here, looking at this symmetry, wondering why I shouldn't rise from this stool and take myself away? Away where I can breathe, somewhere, perhaps, where, like a living tree, I can shed my wasted leaves to grow new ones and flowers and fruit. I choose to stay. I'm rooted here. I agreed to be mounted like a gorgeous sacrifice to tradition. I will not go, my child. It must satisfy me that you can go. You'll learn as you mature that there is some comfort in seeing one's dreams created in her children. Thanks so much to Tara and Chariba. Thank you for joining us for our Foriwa by Afua Sutherland edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, a professor, anyone who might enjoy it. For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by a donation at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Shannon Corinthian. And I'm Mary Candler. And farewell and thank you for joining Bye-bye. us. Bye bye.